Morning, everybody. All right. Hope everybody got a chance to grab some food. And uh, now it's nap time, so let me just take us through that. Uh, turn to Romans chapter 6, if you're not already there. Uh, you might also, uh, just in the middle of this, I'm going to go to Philippians 3 for a couple of minutes. You might want to just kind of mark your spot there if you want to go there with me. Otherwise, you can just listen to me talk about that. Um, quick little announcement um, before we get started on the text. Uh, first of all, my name is Frank. If you're new here, I'm one of the pastors here, and, and most often the guy you're going to see uh, doing what, what's, uh, what I'm doing right now, uh, preaching the, the message. Um, next week, we are starting a membership class. Uh, for those of you that would like to find out more about Redemption Church, more about uh, what our doctrine is, our, our theology, more about how we operate, more about its leadership. If you have any sort of questions, uh, Sean Mortensen, who is one of the elders here at Arcadia, is going to be leading that, that class. It's going, to take, it's going to last three weeks, so it'll be the uh, 20th, the 27th, and then November 3rd. And it'll be uh, downstairs in one of our classrooms downstairs during the 11 o'clock service, but we have a little bit of a change. Ordinarily, we say we're going to start it at 11 o'clock, uh, we want to start it at 10.45 instead of 11. And the reason we want to do that is because uh, we've discovered that when we have classes downstairs that start at 11 o'clock, it creates a bottleneck with parents who are also bringing children down there for the 11 o'clock service. And, and, and it gets very confusing and it, and it creates some problems. And so it would be a lot easier on everyone if we could get down there 15 minutes earlier and start the class 15 minutes earlier. It will also mean you'll be done 15 minutes earlier, and it will also mean that since there are donuts down there, you'll get the donuts in your mouth and in your stomach 15 minutes sooner. So those are incentives for you to go down there at 1045 instead of 11 if you could do that. But that starts next week. If you want to know how to sign up for the membership class, see somebody at the Connect desk at the back, uh, or you can just go on our website and you can sign up there. Uh, let us know that you're going to be attending that, that class. So... We are uh, still in Romans, and we are still in Romans 6. We're going to be six messages out of chapter uh, 6, and today we're going to do verses 8 through 11, which is what Eugene just read for us. Uh, but I want to go back and just spend a couple of minutes making sure that we set the context for you of these four verses we're looking at uh, today. Context is so important to be able to understand what's really going on. Uh, and the first thing I would say about verses 8 through 11 is that they are part of a paragraph that's larger than just verses 8 through 11. So we need to look at the entire literary unit that verses 8 and 11 are in. And that was started last week. We did verses 5 through 7. The whole paragraph is 5 through 11. But even beyond that, what we need to remember is that we are still within the context of the end of Romans chapter 5, where Paul makes this radical statement. And then he spends virtually all of chapter 6 explaining uh, and answering questions about what he says at the end of chapter 5. And what he says at the end of chapter 5 is that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. So, so even as our sin increases, uh, we are connected to the God, a God who is so loving and merciful that, that as our sin increases, His grace and His love just increases right along with it. In other words, we can never out-sin His grace. And that's a radical statement, and it's also true, but we also know the truth of that statement then is going to generate in some of us, all of us, at some point or another, 
this sort of question. Well, if the more I sin, the more grace I get, why don't I just keep on sinning? Why, why do I even worry about my sin at this, at this point? And I might as well just go ahead and sin all the more so that there is more grace. And Paul assumes that we're going to ask that question. And so he, deals, he asks it rhetorically at the beginning of chapter 6. And he answers it in verse 2. He says, may it never be, or by no means. It's the strongest Greek negation there is, me genoito. And literally it means inconceivable that you could think that way. And he doesn't say it looking down his nose at us. He says it in a way that is, that is just letting us know, you really need to understand the grace and the gospel of God. And if you do, then you would recognize that that is not the response you would necessarily have. So may it never be. May, may you never sin more just because you're going to get more grace. Instead, let me try to explain to you what this gospel is, what this good news is. And then that's essentially what the rest of chapter 6 is all about. And in verse 4 of chapter 6, at the end of the first paragraph of, of chapter 6, he says that we have been made to walk in newness of life, this, this unique life, this novel life that only the life, death, and resurrection and our faith in Jesus can give us. And he says, so this is a new life that you're going to walk in. And then this paragraph that we look at last week and this week is really all about unpacking that, that newness of life and what that unique life looks like. So let me go back and read what we looked at last week and just bring you up to date. So he starts in verse 5. For if we have been united with him, with Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And last week we talked about the importance of that word united, and we're going to see that word a number of times again. The word united is the Greek word symphatos, which literally means grown together in such a way that there is no distinction between the two. They, they become one and the same. We're integrated, we're synthesized with Christ if we have faith in Him, if we believe in Him, and we've been justified and been given righteousness by Him, then we are synthesized, we are grown together with Him in a way that there is no distinction between the two. When God looks at us, He sees Christ. And so if we've been united with Him in death, we certainly are going to be united with Him in life as well. And then verses 6 and 7 explain a little bit more about the death side of that. And then verses 8 through, uh, eight through uh, did I say 6 and 7? Yeah, and then verses 8 through 11, the verses we look at today, is going to unpack the life side of that. So we're going to talk a lot more about the life today. So verses 6 and 7 he writes this, For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And so last week we talked about, essentially we had a three-point outline. We talked about the old man, the body of sin, and the fact that we're no longer enslaved to sin. And that old man is that, is that old Adamic nature that we got from Adam. Before we can be in Christ, we were in something else, and we were in Adam. And we need to understand that every person alive, every person who has ever lived, was either in Adam or in Christ. One of the two. You can't be anything else. And if you're in Christ now, you were at one time in Adam. And if you're in Adam now, really, I would suggest to you that your goal should be that you'd want to be in Christ. Because that's where the gospel is. That's where the good news is. And so that old man, that old self being in Adam, 
Paul says that was crucified with Jesus Christ. If we're in Christ in his death, that old Adamic man is gone from us. That old Adamic self is gone. Which means that our body of sin has been brought to nothing. It's been nullified. It's been made void. And that word there that describes the body of sin literally means that uh, in comparison to the power of the gospel, this body of sin no longer has the power that it once had. When we were in Adam, this body of sin reigned and ruled over us. We were enslaved to us. We could do nothing but sin. We were not able to not sin. When sin presented itself to us, we always went for the sin. Even if we thought we weren't, we were always going to go for the sin. Now in Christ... That old body of sin doesn't have that power anymore. We have the power of the resurrected Christ in us. So now, even though the sin tempts us, even though the sin tantalizes us, even though sometimes we still fall to that sin, we recognize that the power of Christ in us can lead us away from giving in to that sin because we have a new nature. We have a nature in Christ. So the body of sin has been nullified. It doesn't have the power it used to have. Therefore, we're no longer enslaved to sin. Sin is no longer our master. Sin is no longer our Lord. We've been set free from sin in order to be able to live for God and for others. And we looked at all of that last week. And now verse 8 comes along. And Paul uses verse 8 to again sort of stop and just reiterate what his point is in this entire paragraph. He says, if we have died with Christ, we also believe that we will live with Him. In other words, he's saying, listen, we don't get just a part of Jesus. He died and He lives. We get all of that. We don't just get the death, we get the resurrection. If we're in one, we are in the other. And this truth of verse 8 then leads to something that Paul says that we know in the next three verses. He starts verse 9 by saying, therefore, this is what we know. And if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that I get excited whenever Paul says something like, you know this, knowing this, this is what we know, we know, because I understand that as being a guarantee, a promise from God, the creator God of this universe, who is holy and perfect, who can make any promise and make it come true. This is his guarantee that what he says in these next three verses is absolutely true. You can completely trust and bank on this, and that should be exciting. And here's what he tells us that we absolutely know. This is great, great stuff. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. We're going to talk a little bit about that word dominion. Verse 10, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So, therefore, consequentially, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel right here. We're going to talk about the gospel today. And so in verse 9, Paul says, We know that Jesus can't die again, and therefore death has no dominion over him. That word dominion comes from the Greek word kurios, which actually means Lord. The word is, is normally translated as Lord. Okay? And so what's happening here is Paul is giving us a little bit of a play on words. Sin used to be the Lord of our lives. But now we are in Christ through His death and resurrection. And now Jesus would be Lord of our lives because 
He has dominion. He's the one who has reign. He rules. He has lordship. He is Lord of life. He is Lord of everything. And therefore, He is also Lord of death. He is Lord over death. And I want you to think about this, 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 the trouble that we have with death. Death is often lorded over us. You ever notice that? Death is often lorded over us. It's, it's something that motivates us, often in a very negative way. We, we, we see death as a very negative thing. We, we tend to deny death. We, we tend to be afraid to talk about death. We use euphemisms about death. We, we say things like, he passed away, or she's in a, in a better place. Uh, some of us actually... We may never say it out loud, but we're kind of thinking maybe I'll be around, I'll live long enough that they can develop this medical science that I will never actually physically die. Death <clears throat> is lorded over us. Death rules over us. We, we live under the shadow of death all the time. We are desperately afraid of death, although we may not necessarily talk about it that way. In fact, research has shown for the last 30 or 40 years, there's only one thing that Americans fear more than death. Anybody know what it is? Taxes. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's, um, we're afraid of that too. Pu that's exactly right. Public speaking. That's how much we hate public speaking, by the way. We're more afraid of public speaking than death. That it caused Jerry, I'm way off topic now, but that caused Jerry Seinfeld once to say, uh, the, the fact that public speaking is, is more frightening to us than death means that the person giving the eulogy at a funeral would rather be the person in the casket, okay? But we are afraid of death. And it is lorded over us. But now Jesus has dominion over that, and we're in him, and therefore death is no longer our master. We're, not, we're no longer enslaved to that. And that leads to what we know about Jesus and ourselves in verse 10. We are dead to sin and alive to God. And I would suggest that, that the application of verse 10 is really expounded on in this passage in Philippians chapter 3 that I'm going to take you there. It's not that Paul is writing to the Philippians and he thinks, I need to explain verse 10 from Romans chapter 6 a little bit more. It's just that Paul has a one-track mind about the gospel. And so if we want a little bit more explanation of what verse 10 means, we can look at, at, at Philippians chapter 3 verses 7 through 16 because it really does sort of unpack this idea of death and life and what it looks like. And here's what he says. Now, Understand that starting in verse 10 of chapter 3 of Philippians, what Paul has been doing is he's been saying, listen, those of you that think that apart from Christ, you have a resume that will impress God, you need to understand, I have a better resume than that. What he's saying is that if anybody ever had a good enough resume for God apart from Christ, it was me. He's saying, I have a long list of achievements. I have a long list of accomplishments. I have a long list of righteousness that, that anybody else's list pales in comparison to mine. And yet he says, here, here's what he says about that long list. He says, but whatever gain I had, whatever resume I have, whatever accomplishments I have, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. When Christ invaded my life, all of that stuff pales now in comparison to the power of the gospel in my life. Indeed, verse 8, indeed I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Literally, that Greek word there means dung. I count it as dung in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. And then he explains what that righteousness might look like. He says, that I may know him, that I may know Jesus, and that I may know the power of his resurrection, the power of his life, and that I may share his sufferings. In other words, I also share in the death of Christ, the death of sin, so that sin and death no longer reign over me in my life. They no longer are lorded over me. I'm able to share in those sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then he says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. Now, let me explain here what's going on here. That we are dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. That has happened. And that is a 100% fact right now. But the fact also is that we still must live in this world and still fight the corruption of this world and the corruption of our flesh that is hanging on. And so he's acknowledging sort of, the, <clears throat> sort of the already and not yet status of the believer in Christ who's still alive physically. So he says, not that I've already obtained all of this, not that I've already become perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on only by the power of Christ in me because he has made me his Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal uh, for the prize of the upward call of, Christ Jesus, of God in Christ Jesus. In other words, I am focused on Christ and Christ alone. That's my life. That's my focus. I am in the resurrected Christ in that way. Verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. There's a wonderful, encouraging promise there that the stuff that we struggle with today, God is probably going to eventually reveal what all of that means to us at some point, sometime. And we can continue to work toward that in our communities and as we study the Bible together. And then he says, only let us hold true to what we have attained. And what he means by that is let us hold true to what Christ has already done for us by his life, death, and resurrection. So he's talking about this idea that we are dead to sin and death no longer rules over us and we are alive to God through Jesus Christ. That's the reality of it. And so now we need to lean into that and actually live for it. And he says in verse 10 of Romans 6, Christ died once for all. This was done once for all. That, that Greek adverb that we translate as once for all, it's all over the New Testament. It's especially prevalent in the book of Hebrews. And, and, and what it's doing is it's reminding us of the finality of the cross. Everything that had to happen for the forgiveness of sins and the redemption of our lives happened at the cross of Jesus Christ. Even Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. It's over with. Jesus cannot die again. He does not have to die again. Nor must anything else die again. 
there's no more sacrifice of animals for sin. Nothing has to die anymore. It's a done deal. He has defeated death. And this is not defeating death like the way uh, he, he had Lazarus defeat death. Because Lazarus eventually died again physically. It means that he's defeated this spiritual death that we are in because of Adam and that original sin. And he says this is a done deal. What Jesus did was put an end to, the de- to, to death for anybody who would come to him. So we are a part of that. And if you get nothing else out of today, hear this. This is a done deal. It's finished. And so quit trying to make deals with God. And I'm talking to believers now. Because I know even us believers, we, we still make deals with God. I, I was at RC on, on our redemption community on Friday night, and we talked about that. As believers, do we really believe this stuff? Or are we still trying to make deals with God? Are we still trying to negotiate the terms of our salvation? Are we still worried that God hates us because we sin? We're still trying to make deals with God. We're still telling God in our minds, you know, if you do this, I'll do that. Or, God, if I do this, you should do that. Or, we're still trying to work for God's approval. We don't need to work for God's approval. You've been stamped through Jesus Christ. You're approved. You're affirmed. All of you you, you affirmation addicts, and I know you're out there, just come to Jesus. He affirms you. Boom, you're done. You don't ever have to worry about getting affirmed or approved anywhere else. And here you go. Here's another one. Quit comparing yourself to others. We all do this, social comparison process. And we do this for God. We do this on behalf of God. We compare ourselves to others, hoping that God will see the truth that we are better than at least half the people in this world. And therefore, by, by virtue of us being in the, in the top 49.5%, we deserve to get into heaven, right, God? Not only did you die for me, God, but I'm also one of the top 49%. That's awesome. You don't need to do any of that anymore. So quit negotiating the terms of your salvation. It's a done deal. And for some of you, you're sitting there going, well, what was the deal again? Well, here's the deal. Christianity 101. You and I are sinners. We are born into sin, separated from God, and we can't do anything about that, but God has through His Son, Jesus Christ. He sent His Son... God incarnate, God in the flesh, to live, die, and be raised again so that the penalty of sin is paid so that you and I might be redeemed and we would have a resurrected life and we would live eternally with God in heaven. And it's done. Game over. Quit trying to start the game clock again. You don't need to. Once for all. And then that takes us to verse 11 where we'll spend the rest of our time. And let me tell you something. If you think I'm amped up now, verse 11, I am so excited about this is a great verse. It's a great verse. I'm going to explain all why it is. Here you go. I'm still in Philippians, sorry. Here we go. Verse 11 of chapter 6. So, you must also consider yourselves. We're going to spend all of our time talking about that verb right there, consider. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That word consider is the Greek word legizomai, and it has two uses, both in Scripture and in Greek antiquity. It was always used to mean two different things, but they're connected. The first use is that it's an accounting term. Legizomai means to count or to render. And and in, 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 in the English, we get words like to log something in or to keep track of something or to consider the logistics of something, we get those words from the word legizomai. So it's an accounting term. 
And then it's also a term that means true word or true message. So we get the word logic or logical from legizomai. It's a logical word. It's a logical message. And both of these uses of the word legizomai have this common ground. Legizomai deals with reality, the way things really are. James Boyce says, legizomai has nothing to do with wishful thinking. The, the late great F.F. F. Bruce says it this way, Legizomai is no game of less pretend. Believers are to think of themselves, consider themselves as dead to sin and alive to God because that is in fact who God has made us to be. That's who we are. And, and in this case here, specifically, another scholar says that Paul is talking about a logical conclusion. This is the logical conclusion Paul or anybody else would have if they understand the gospel. He says, it makes sense to understand or count your life in Christ in this way. And, and, this word legizomai here, this verb, it's an imperative. It's a command. It is an exhortation. And this is so important. I'll talk a little bit more about it in a minute. I just want to tease you with this right now. But this is, listen, listen. We've been in Romans since April. We are now knee deep in Romans. We are deep into this book. We're in chapter 6. And this is the first time I've said to you that we have an imperative verb in this entire letter. This is a big, big deal. We're going to come back to that in a second. But first... I want to also say that verse 11 is a key identity verse. We have talked a lot in the last couple of weeks about identity. I'm going to talk about it more because we really need to get this. This verse is all about who we are, our identity. And the tense of the word, legizomai, is continuous. In other words, Paul's saying we are to always constantly and continue to consider ourselves, think of ourselves, remember ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, here's where it gets a little rough. <clears throat> We've been talking a lot about the culture in the last few weeks and the culture we live in and, and some of the struggles that we have and the differences in our worldview. One of the things as a culture that we have decided, not all of us individually necessarily, but as a culture, this is the direction that we are moving in. We have decided to make our identity, uh, make ourselves known by what we do. What we do has become of paramount importance to us. And because we are by nature sinners, what we do is we sin a lot. So naturally, at some point, if our identity is going to be in what we do, we not only have to try to figure out how to justify or rationalize our sin, but we also actually have to try to get people to champion it or advocate for it. Or affirm it in such a way that says, it's really good. It's not just that we're neutral about this. It's that everybody's running around going, oh, no, no, no. They're wonderful for doing those things. We're supposed to be affirming it. And Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. He says, this is one of the problems with human beings. Not only do we try to rationalize our sin, but at some point we're going to start saying, no, 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 no. Not only is it not bad, but it's also better than anything that you think is good. And that's exactly what we're doing. And the reason we do that is because not behaving the way we want to is not an option in our culture. We talked about this last week. If you weren't here last week, I'm not promoting me on this. I'm just saying there was a really important part of the message where we talked about Dale Keene's book, Sex in the Eye World. 
And he talks about how fulfillment in our world today, we believe, comes from the freedom from three things. Freedom from nature, freedom from authority, and freedom from want. And that there is a taboo in our culture now that we are not allowed to ever question or criticize anybody's life choices or their behavior. So we get to do whatever we want. We get to fulfill every want and desire that we have, and nobody in culture is allowed to question that. That's the culture we live in today. So in other words, to practice self-control by the power of the gospel is really not an option. The world looks at the church now and says, no, that's not an option. That's a traditional way of looking at things, and that is no longer good. This is better than that. So we live in this in this world today where we not only must find reasons to rationalize our behavior, but we have to build a case for why the alternative is actually better to the traditional understanding of life, community, and relationship. And what's sad about this, again, we talked about this last week, is that we now understand <clears throat> the human experience not as who we are, but what we do. And the problem with that is that Jesus wants us to know who we are. And we are His. We are His adopted child. We are righteous and justified. That's who we are. But that also means that when you and I are in community together, and when you and I are in relationship with God, it means that we have to go deeper than simply our behavior. Christians are supposed to have deep relationships with God and with each other. So for the Christian... Our identity is actually very countercultural. We are called by Paul in verse 11 to remember who we are, not what we do. In other words, Paul is saying this. The path to a holy life is not a program for cleaning us up. It's believing God. The path to a holy life is not you and I trying to figure out how to clean us up. But rather we just believe God. Again, I, I am still surprised by the number of people I run into who say, as soon as I get my life in order, I'll start coming to church. And by that they mean, as soon as I become a better person, I'll feel like I can go to church. No! You're messed up just like all of us here. You're more than welcome to come in here. You'll be just like us. Because who you are is in Christ. Not what you do. And then we get to lean into who we are. This is why Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer, and C.S. Lewis, the great 20th century philosopher and, and theologian, both of them say that the true Christian life is one of repentance, not rationalization. If we know who we are in Christ, we come to recognize that when we do sin, when we have behavior that is sinful, we are no longer behaving in a way that is consistent with the new identity we have in Christ. And so the answer then is not to rationalize or justify our behavior, but to just run back to Jesus. To run back to the cross. To humble ourselves. To repent. To be in relationship. And to embrace who we are. L listen, I I'll try to personalize this a little bit. I, confess, I would just confess to you. I, I, I like isolation I do I like isolation isolation just feels right to me and the reason isolation feels right to me 
is because even though I know cognitively who I am in the life and the death of Jesus Christ, I know that, that death is no longer <clears throat> lorded over me. I know that that old man is dead. I know my body of sin is nullified. And I know that in Christ I live and I'm alive to God. But I don't always feel like I have dominion over those things, right? Neither do you. You might be in Christ, but you still feel like you don't have dominion over your sin. Occasionally, it just gets hard, right? And so when I'm in isolation, it feels right, because then I don't have to be responsible, I don't have to be accountable, and I don't ever have to confront the fact that I do now have dominion over sin through Christ Jesus. I don't have to answer to anyone, it seems. And so when I'm in isolation, I can more easily practice the one thing that my flesh really likes, which is the pleasure principle. Doing whatever it is that I like that brings me pleasure and avoiding suffering and pain at any expense. I am a pleasure principle person. Give me the three Ps, man, I'm telling you. That's, that's who I am in that old man. And I, and I wrestle with that. And, and I've, I've confessed to you that my idols are really comfort and convenience, so that's where I go. Whatever's comfortable and whatever's convenient for me. And I'll tell you what, comfort and convenience comes a lot easier in isolation, amen? If there's nobody else around to bug you <laughs> or for you to have to focus on, it's really easy to be comfortable and, and, and have convenience, okay? And so I, I like isolation, the problem is, is that my identity in Christ tells me, and it tells me here in Romans, it tells me in Hebrews, it tells me in the Gospels, and it even tells me in the Psalms that my identity is now alive to God through Christ, and therefore I am in community with God through Christ, and I'm in community with others through Christ, and that community not only allows for, but, but demands authentic, deep consideration of who I really am and permission for both God and others to speak deeply into my life. And so even in isolation, God still speaks to me because God always has the last word. So even isolation for me at some point, the returns become minimal and it's unsustainable. God has the last word. But the world we live in today, the world calls for advocacy, affirmation, and activism for sinful things. And the world we live in today calls for a type of love that is not biblical and that we've never really experienced before. It's the type of love that never, ever, 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 ever confronts or questions anybody about anything. In other words, we are at the peak of shallowness right now. We are at the peak of shallowness. And here's where I think the rubber meets the road on this issue. And I think this is so important. And I'm talking to us now as a church. So hear me, church. There has never been a time in America where the culture and the biblical church have been more at odds. Never been a time. Never been a time in America where the culture and the biblical church have been more at odds. The worldview of the culture and the worldview of the biblical church are diametrically opposed. And for most people in the church, this is what's sad, what for most people in the church, that's meant defeat. I can't tell you how many church leaders are walking around saying, we've lost this war, we're defeated, we don't know what to do now. That's, by the way, why so many churches have decided, well, why don't we just go with the flow 
rather than standing against the flow. You know, you don't have to be alive to go with the flow. Any dead thing can go with the flow in a river. The only thing that can stand in the midst of the flow and push back against the flow is something that is alive. So people who take that position say the church is dead, and I'm saying there's no way. And again, this is really sad because it also means that most of the church really doesn't understand the gospel and doesn't understand history. History shows us clearly that the gospel has has had its most magnificent times of advancement always in the most challenging of contexts. Always when the world tells us to bow and bend to it. Always when the church was the outcast, the church was mocked, the church was oppressed, the church was marginalized, the church was persecuted. And God has shown time and time again that for Him to work miracles and do the impossible, the circumstances must be the the type, the kind, where only God can work miracles and do the impossible. That's the definition of miracles and impossible. So church, I am challenging us and I am saying to us, we are not headed into our darkest times, but we are heading into our most magnificent moments. We are heading into our finest hour. So for those Christians who want to put their tails between their legs and go into isolation and wall out the world and culture because it's scary, I would suggest that you really need to come to know who Christ is and what the gospel is. See, isolation is not only bad because it leads to sin, but isolation is also bad because it leads to the salt losing its saltiness and the light losing its light. And Jesus in Matthew 5 says, that's a problem. We are to be salt and light to the world. We are to stand against the flow, not with a mean, crooked finger pointing out the horrible sin of people, but telling them about the life of Jesus, about the gospel. And that brings us to this interesting point about verse 11, and which is why I think this verse is so critical for us to understand and embrace. One of the raps against Christianity, one of the things that people say they don't like about Christianity is that it's a religion of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. Uh, uh, just look at the list of do's and don'ts. That The Bible is all about our behavior and commands and about how we need to control, modify, or change our behavior. So here's what's so interesting about verse 11 and why it's so important and why it is all about our identity, who we are. In all of Romans, this is the first verse that we have come across that is an imperative, that has an imperative verb in it a command an exhortation to do something and what is it that we are exhorted to do think (laughs) consider remember know who you are six chapters our first command consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God through Jesus Christ. That's what we're commanded to do. This is not a case for behavior modification. It's a declaration of who we are. Your identity is not in what you do. It is in who you are in Christ. So so stop obsessing about your behavior and consider who you are in Christ. It's funny, in Philippians, Paul exhorts us not about our behavior, He doesn't exhort us about our behavior in Philippians, but rather he says, you need to have the mind of Christ. You need to think like Jesus. 
You need to have the same mind as his. You need to be guided by his worldview of humility, not a worldview of moralism. And in chapter 4 of Philippians, he says you're to think about these things. You're to consider these things. You're to ruminate on these things. Whatever is good, whatever is true, whatever is right, whatever is excellent, whatever is just, whatever is lovely, and whatever is worthy of praise. In other words, all the things that the resurrected Christ brings to life. In other words, we are to be in Christ and we are to be who we are. It's the same here in, in, in Romans. In this text, Paul is not telling us to die to our sin because he said that has already happened. He says he's telling us to consider who we are in that death and in that resurrection and remember that fact and live in it. So Paul's not giving us six steps to not sinning or four ways to become a better Christian or ten axioms for freedom. He gives us Christ and Him crucified. That's it. We're in Christ, he says. Remember that. And in a practical sense, here's what it means. It means that when we look at sin, when sin enters our life, when, when it starts to tempt us and tantalize it, when we begin to think about it, when we're made aware of sin, we can realize that we were once under the reign and rule of sin and that, that, that sin was our master and that we were its slave and we had no power to not sin. But now, by the power of the resurrected Christ, we are able not to sin. So we can look at that sin, and for the first time in our lives, we can say, I don't have to do that. And in fact, I'm going to be better off long term if I stay away from that. We have the ability to consider these things and have power over them because of Christ in us. We look at sin and we say, that's not who I am anymore. We are new. Paul says, remember that, live to that, consider that, and lean to that. In, in other sections of the New Testament, Paul says it this way, the love of Christ compels us, and the love of Christ constrains us. The love of Christ motivates us to do things that we're called to do in the resurrected Christ, and it also constrains us from doing the things that we are not to do because we are now dead to sin. We are motivated and inspired as well as disciplined and controlled by the love of Christ. Jesus has given us this grace, truth, love, and power. That's us now. And in fact, that's what Paul says. I'll give you just a little teaser for next week. That's what he says in verses 12 through 14. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you are under grace. So repent, come to Christ, and that's your identity. Consider yourselves alive to God. Josh is going to come and lead us into our time of, of uh, response and reflection. Sean's going to come and lead the band as we do that. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that we are dead to sin now and we are alive to you through Jesus Christ. And so, God, we just pray that, that we would be uh, able to remember that, that we would legizomai, that we would consider, and that, that would be on our mind all of the time and we would recognize that through your Son we have power over sin and we are able to live this new life that you are called us to. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.